The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is David Drapkin. David serves as the chair of the Section 809 panel. And David, um, welcome to the show, first of all. Well, thank you, Roger. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Your career spans, let me think, about 36 years. Is that right? Or is that a little longer than that? Uh, but uh, don't talk about my gray hair on the show. <laughs> well, I could, yeah, yeah, you and me both. Um, so as, as you've worked at GSA, worked at DOD, you've worked in the private sector as well. Um, so you've kind of a unique... Um, yeah, unique perspective and um, br- that you bring to the to the eight hundred nine panel, and so let's dig right into it. Um, so, first of all, for our listeners, um, the panel's been around for a while, but why don't we just go through? You know, what's uh, what? Are, what is it? What are the goals? How was it organized? We'll walk through some of that information. Well, thank you. Uh, the Section eight hundred nine panel was directed by Congress in the FY sixteen. National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, it directed the secretary to appoint a panel of experts to look at acquisition in the Department of Defense specifically and to look at uh, the regulations governing acquisition and make recommendations for improvement. Pursuant to that direction, on August 12, 2016, the SecDef appointed uh, 18 uh, commissioners. At that time, uh, Dee Lee was the chair, and um, and she had uh, fifteen other six. I'm sorry, seventeen other uh, commissioners appointed along with her. Uh, the panel had at that time a one-year mission to deliver its report to Congress by August of 2017. Subsequently, Congress amended the uh, Section uh, 809 of the FY16 NDAA. Uh, Actually, they amended it twice. The result of those amendments was the uh, panel's time for submitting reports was extended till January 15th of 2019, and Congress specifically directed the panel to submit three reports. The first was was to be delivered in January of 2018, and it was the second to be delivered in June of 2018, and we actually delivered ahead of schedule. And as I said, the third being delivered on January 15, 2019, and it looks right now like we will be right on time. In addition to those two required reports, the panel issued an interim report in May of 2017. All of our reports... And the summaries of those reports can be found at our website, www.section809panel.org. Let me say that again. Why don't you do that, David? www.section809panel.org. Our final report will also be posted on the website, uh, although it's not clear right at this moment who will maintain our records and website when we stand down. 
we are in the process of discussing that with uh, yeah, you got about three months left really right well, three months for the report. Poor. Actually, Congress authorized the panel to continue to exist through J- July 15th of 2019. Okay, but by that time, we'll have a very small group of people still working. Is that purpose of that is if, they, if the Hill comes back with questions or the things they might and, want you to take a look at or the executive branch as well? Yes. Uh, at the time, in the discussions with the Hill, uh, when they made the amendments to the original Section 809, there was thoughts that there would be hearings by the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services yeah. Committee on our report uh, after we delivered the final version. In addition, since we began our work, one of the endeavors we're undertaking, we call it the plus one. We have 10 teams plus one. Okay, yes. That's equals 11, right? No, uh, I'm just kidding. Well, actually, (laughs) I I don't know why we never made that the uh, Team 11, but we didn't and we haven't. But that plus one team is working on uh, recodification, uh, decluttering uh, is what uh, Chairman Thornberry refers to it as, of Title 10. Title 10, yeah. And we won't finish that by January 15th, but our, our legislative counsel, a fellow named Bob Cover, We'll be working till the day we turn off the lights, finishing that decluttering. Okay. So let's uh, let's unpack a little bit about that. So there's 18 uh, folks on the panel. Is that a mix of government and industry? Uh, Presumably all have the DOD, obviously, procurement experience, program experience. Can you describe the membership a little bit without, you know, naming names, I guess? (laughs) They can, all, they can go look at the, what's that website? www.section809panel.org. Okay. Thank you very much. We've got to get that out there. Well, first of all, we, I said we started with 18. Uh, since we began, two of our commissioners resigned. Dee Lee resigned, and I took her place as chair. And, um, and uh, Claire, Claire um Grady, who yeah. was the DPAP, the Director yes. of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy, was uh, kind of promoted. She's now the Undersecretary of uh, Administration at the Department of Homeland Security. So right. we're left with 16. Those 16 commissioners represent well over 400 years of experience in government contracting. Um, all of them have experience in on the government side, primarily from the DOD perspective, uh, and uh, not quite all, but almost all, have also industry experience, having served uh, their country, most of them having retired, and then going into the private sector and then being appointed to the panel. They form, as I mentioned, 10 plus 1 team. Team 1 is looking at the FAR, the DFARs, and the underlying um, policies and statutes that require what's in the FAR and the DFARs today. Uh, We will deliver an appendix with our report that will give you a complete layout back to the publication of the FAR, which was on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1984. That's right. I remember that. That's right. Team two <laughs> looked at something we called the simplified procurement procedures, and we fin- they finished their work, and we're incorporating it into another recommendation. Team three looked at commercial items. Uh, we get, were very fortunate, Larry Trow, who right. led the FASA implementation team for commercial items, leads team three, 
And we've made uh, recommendations in Volume 1 and Volume 2, and there will be additional uh, present recommendations in Volume 3 to uh, improve commercial item buying, to remove uh, all of the clutter that's been added to that and to make it easier for companies who sell commercial items to sell them to the Department of Defense. I originally led Team 4, which looked at barriers to entry, Charlie Williams is our current uh, leader of Team 4, and we will be making recommendations dealing with what we call readily available items. We've really kind of divided our report, the first two sections, into evolutionary changes. In Volume 3, there will be revolutionary changes proposed, principally in two areas. Team 4's recommendation on what we now call readily available and uh, Team 5, which is the next team's recommendations on portfolio management. Team so is it readily available, like products are out there that may have to be slightly customized or whatever for for but the department's use? Or is that, is that my understanding? Product, is that right? It includes yeah. products and services, yeah. and it's anything you can buy that doesn't have to be developed specifically for the department. Okay. Anything. And it specifically includes services. But readily available has two pieces. There's readily available. Nothing has to be done to it. Mm-hmm. Some people will think of it as COTS, but it's much more than COTS because it's things that we couldn't get through the definition of a commercial item that still can be bought without anything being done to it. Right. And then there are readily available items which companies routinely as part of their sales practices customize for their customer. Mm-hmm. And and you can find the price list for it, and, and it's something that they're set up to do. It even includes companies who take your designs and build something for you based on your design. They sell that service throughout the public sector. Right. For example, a more mundane example is you have a pump that you bought for a ship, let's say, and the person who, the company who originally manufactured that pump's gone out of business. But you need the pump so the ship can sail. Uh, and so you go to a company who either re, uh, reworks, re-engineers uh, the pump and produces it or takes your drawings and produces it from your drawings. But right. they do that same service. Right. That's, that's their business, right? That's what they're in yeah. business to do. So that's readily available and readily available with uh, customization. But it's customization that is done as a normal sales practice. It's not unique to the Department of Defense. Uh, but um, And this would be one of the revolutionary ideas. Team 5. Okay. Why don't we stop right there? And when we go the next segment, we'll get through all the teams and we'll start, talk about some of uh, sure. a little bit about some of the specific recommendations, uh, interesting stuff out there. My guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel. And you're listening listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel. And we're talking all things Section 809 today. It's uh, You've got like a uh, about a three months left till the report is due. Um, and then the, the panel, I guess... Turns the lights off, let's say, in July of 2019. Um, 
And David, uh, when we took the break, you'd gotten through the Team Four, right? And we talked, um, and we talked about readily available items, um, which actually is an, a fascinating t- topic, actually, for mm. you know procurement geeks like ourselves, right? right. So, uh, but let's uh, Team Five. Team Five. Team 5 was charged with looking at programs within the Department of Defense, and unlike in the past, panels and commissions, where they looked at what went wrong and how to fix it, Team 5 looked at what's going right and how do we replicate it. And so you'll see, and we'll talk later about another It's an interesting concept, right? Well, Doing you know, that. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. You paid to do something right, and you ignore it. Right, and, right. and you focus your attention on things that went wrong, which sometimes they obviously need to be fixed, but... You don't take advantage of, of the investment you've already made. And that's what Team 5 has done, and their recommendation will be one of the other revolutionary recommendations on portfolio management. Then we have Team 6. Team 6 is looking at uh, information technology specifically, and, and the information technology that the department buys, and they will be making recommendations on changes they think are necessary in order to support the department in purchasing information technology. Uh, it's it's really important to understand that it was clear from our our investigations and our inquiries and our meetings that how IT is bought and sold in the private sector is very different from how trucks are bought and sold in the private sector. And although it seems obvious, our system doesn't recognize that. Team 7 is looking at the issues associated with the budgeting and fiscal law processes in, in government contracting. A lot of people don't understand that many of the requirements that appear in a government contract have nothing to do with the actual thing you're buying. They have to do with the rules that Congress has made, with the money they provide, and how that can be spent. And often that presents some challenges when Congress, unlike this year, um, doesn't deliver a budget on time. Yes. Team 8 was our team that looked at all of the informa- uh, uh, suggestions we got from the public at our website, www.section809panel.org. That's sort of like the suggestion box panel? Is we that had yeah. a suggestion box, yeah. and we received over 500 separate recommendations. Now, some of them were physically impossible, and we didn't deal with them. <laughs> I'm not going to ask what those were. <laughs> uh, but many of them were insightful, and, and, and some of them appeared as separate standalone recommendations in our volumes, interim volume one and volume two reports. Then there's section team nine. Team nine looked at CAS. Uh, and they look cost at, accounting standards for our listeners, right? That's right. Thank uh, you very much. Yeah. I often forget I use an acronym, and some people don't understand. But right. the cost accounting standards were cited by many people that we talked to as a barrier to being able to do business with the Department of Defense, particularly for small businesses, but also for medium-sized businesses as well, and even some large businesses who'd never done business with the department before right. like, had faced a challenge. Yeah. Like traditionally, and, people you think are com- sort of pure commercial firms that you would that right. the department would want to do business with. Uh, but in, you know, in our parlance, it's more than just commercial. It's any company in the private sector yes. that uh, has not done business with the Department of Defense before and is looking at the possibility of getting a cost type contract or a flexibly priced type contract uh, faces. Uh, a dilemma at certain dollar thresholds for CAS. And so we've made recommendations to improve not only how the CAS board, the the organization which makes the rules functions, but also uh, at what point in the contracting process 
the rules and requirements of CAS become applicable. Those rules were made and are in our Volume 2 report. Congress has not had a chance yet to evaluate whether they'll adopt them. Team 10 is looking at our acquisition workforce. None of this, none of anything we do in acquisition happens unless the people who actually do the work are trained. Uh, well, first they're educated, then they're trained, and then they have the opportunity to actually practice their craft so that they are able to implement the policies of, uh, of the Congress and, and the president while getting what the warfighter needs in a timely basis. And then I mentioned earlier in the first segment, our plus one team is looking at the recodification, the decluttering of Title X. For those of us who have to research in Title X, you know that it can be a daunting problem because parts of the law are hidden and things that are called notes. Yes, that's right. And uh, we're pulling them out and putting them where you can see them. And the first time since 1947 at the passage of the Armed Services Procurement Act, everything will be in one place and be readable. By the way, uh, as I mentioned, Chairman Thornberry likes this initiative. He's called it the decluttering initiative. Congress adopted the 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 initiative itself in the FY19 Na- National Defense Authorization Act, and yeah. uh, we will be pro- we are already providing them with chapters to populate the structure they adopted in the FY19 Act. This will not result in and of itself of any changes in the law. Right. right. It just reorganizes it and makes sense uh, uh, out of it. Our changes to statute are proposed with our individual recommendations. Right. That's a but that that recodification is a daunting task because because of all those notes and trying to pull it together and you do have to be careful, right, that you're not changing the law, you're just Sort of re. I don't like to re. We're reorganizing. Right. Yes, it, reorganizing it not in a more co- yeah, re- in a more coherent right. You know, and way. that's something that uh, we're very fortunate. I mentioned uh, Bob Cover earlier, our legislative council, and he is working uh, carefully with legislative council in both of the committees on the Hill to make sure that our recommendations are only reorganization and do not by themselves, make changes to the law. Again, we're proposing in separate sections those changes, changes, but not in the reorganization. So, David, before we start talking about some of the the recommendations, um, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, you had those uh, 10 plus 1. You had the suggestion box with 500 recommendations, but you also, as a panel and as your working groups, or did a lot of information gathering. Can you talk, describe that process a little bit for our listeners? Well, as we first stood up, we invited uh, the public to come talk to the panel. We met uh, one, uh, actually twice a month on Thursdays. We had essentially, you, you might refer to it as an open mic day. Yes. And we invited anybody who wanted to come and uh, share with us any of their information. And that was one way we gathered information. And by the way, lots of folks came. Uh, then we went out and actually sought companies who didn't do business with the federal government, not the ones that do uh, initially. We sought the ones that didn't do business with us to find out why. Um, companies that did do business with us actually found us. 
and not only the companies, but their associations. And, and Roger, you came with the coalition not once, but several times uh, to talk to us about particular issues, and so did other associations. Yeah. And then um, and, and then there were just uh, interactions uh, with, uh, we were invited to speak at places, we were invited to be spoken to yes. at places, and so... When all said and done, we spoke to well over 2,000 companies, associations, and individuals all across the country. We went out to Silicon Valley. We went to Austin's IT uh, corridor. We went to Boston. We Mm -hmm. went up and down the I-66 corridor here in Washington. We sought out um, information from every conceivable source. And, and and people came and talked to us from labor unions to uh, uh, to individual companies who uh, had a great idea and wanted to know how can we find uh, someone in the department to buy it. Right. Yeah. I, and I remember one of the things that when Dee before she left, she issued a challenge to the to to the associations around town to submit like was it twenty five specific recommendations. Yeah. Right. T- so. Tell us the things you really hate yeah, right. about government procurement, right. and and those all came in, and we. Uh, got par, uh, they got uh, shared with the various teams, assigned to the various teams, uh, so that we could address uh, the problems that were raised. Some of them, those problems were uh, not of the stature requiring a statutory change or even a regulatory change. And in those cases, we've passed information on to various sources in DOD. One of the things I, I, I didn't point out when I talked about the commissioners is the senior procurement executives of each of the three services are members of the panel. Yes. And they could take whatever information we had back to the service and begin working on changes they thought were appropriate at the time. Claire, uh, until she left, was the the Department of Defense's senior procurement executive. And so we have a continuous dialogue with the department and share information that we that we come across, even if that information may not result in the... Um, in a, in a, in a recommendation. recommendation. Yeah. One other point is we promised people non-attribution. And so when we share information, it's not this is what Roger Waldron said. It's here's a problem that was brought to our attention. Here are the, the specifics that were shared with us. Here is even a recommended, in some cases, solution to that problem. Right. So, thanks, David. And, you know, we're already up on the break. So when we come back, we'll start talking about the in, even more interesting stuff, some of the specific recommendations and sort of the philosophical goal of the panel through those recommendations. My guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Uh, my guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel, and we've been talking about the panel, its goals, its structure. You know, it's it's getting you know close to wrapping up and issuing you know volume three of its series of re- reports and recommendations to the Hill and to the executive branch. And um, so you have issued an interim report, volume one and volume two. And Volume 3, as you said, is due January 15th, 15th of 2019. Um, so, David, let's talk a little bit about Volume 1 in terms of what was the what was the focus of that volume and what are some of the um, key recommendations coming from that. Thanks, Roger. Well, first of all, let me uh, share with you our goals and objectives. 
Our goal when we began the process was to do business the way buyers and sellers do business in the private sector. And the purpose of that was to achieve the objective of delivering capability to the warfighter inside the turn of our near-peer competitors, read Russia and China, China, and non-state actors, anybody who decided they want to do bad things to us. So uh, keeping those things in mind, in Volume 1, we began with a discussion of simplifying the commercial items purchase process. As I told you, these were evolutionary changes. Um, we wanted to go put the commercial back in commercial, and we made recommendations to do that. We also talked about the issue of what we ab- addressed as the dynamic marketplace and the fact that uh, we need to be able to take advantage of the dynamic marketplace itself instead of focusing our attention, which many people have for a very long time, on what they think of as the defense industrial base. In fact, D would tell folks that there is no defense industrial base left. There's probably a core of the defense industrial base, the, uh, a, a segment of the market, which focuses its attention almost solely on the Department of Defense. But for the most part, things we buy today, whether it's goods or services, are coming from companies who are not focused solely on selling to the Department of Defense. Right. And that is that is part of that. What the thing that, you know, that I think is clear that lots of people talked about. I think you guys down the panel did, too, is that, you know, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, right, the Department of Defense, the government drove, you know, technology innovation, whether it was defense related or even, you know, the space program, whatever. Now, innovation and technological advancement is driven, you know, by the private sector. Fundamentally, it's a recognition, actually, that the defense industrial base that Eisenhower warned about, you're too young to remember that. No, no, David. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yes. I'll give myself credit on that one. Thank you. He warned (laughs) us about it in the 1950s because at the time the Department of Defense developed uh, anything new principally was developed in the Department of Defense. Many people don't remember and probably don't drink Tang anymore, but Tang and microwave ovens. Microwave ovens and a host of other technologies that you use today were developed at behest of the Department of Defense in terms of uh, protecting the nation and being able to defend the nation against us. In the 70s and 80s, the dynamic of research and development, which principally done in the 50s and 60s by DOD, was beginning to shift to the private sector. And today the private sector does more R&D um, every day of the week than the Department of Defense does. In fact, the Department of Defense's R&D program is is relatively small, a fraction of, of the whole. And the difficulty with that is when you're not doing re- research and development is you don't get the chance to, to take advantage of innovation in how we um, defend the nation. And so the purpose of the panel was to simplify the process so that we could uh, get our hands on that innovation, and more importantly, put it in the hands of our warfighters um, ahead of the people who want to do bad things to us. In addition, in Volume 1, we also had recommendations, and this is a key one, I think, for the department, particularly for companies that do flexibly priced contracts. We made key recommendations about changing the dynamic for DCAA, the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Uh, over time, 
the, the, the mission of DCAA had changed to where it was not serving as a trusted advisor to the contracting officer and saw itself as an independent outside auditor for those people who understand the auditing differences under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Uh, any company subject to that has to have an outside auditor and an internal auditor. And yeah. DCAA saw themselves as an outside auditor, not an internal auditor supporting the contracting officer and the program manager uh, so that they could make reason business decisions when they were getting ready to buy something. And so we've proposed a significant change uh, to that and, and, and additional proposals coming. Sort of getting them that. back to their core mission. It's, it's how they started. Yeah. It's yeah. how they started. When, when you have a question, you know, and when I was at GSA with you, Roger, for the 10 years of my career, if we needed an audit done, we had to go to the IG, a result right. of the IG Act, which took our internal auditors and put them in the IG's office. Nothing wrong with them being in the IG, but again, they began to think of themselves as external auditors looking right. for to report on problems instead of internal auditors to support and help the contracting officer and the program manager make sure they were doing the right, right. thing. That's a great example. Yep. And so uh, we made that recommendation in Volume 1, and, and we made a number of other significant proposed changes in Volume 1, and uh, you see, I think, some of those uh, being incorporated in, um, in the – well, you saw the commercial item. Def- clarification uh, of the definitions. Was put into the FY19 NDAA. And what's the website where they can see these recommendations? And then in our volume two, we made some additional observations and then recommendations. First, we discussed a new defense framework, which kind of starts – with trying to shape for the public what our real picture of the 2B in the Department of Defense should be if when our recommendations are adopted. We made uh, recommendations about improving how we pay for uh, education and training in the Department of Defense, specifically on what's referred to as DODF, the Defense Acquisition Workforce um, uh, Development Fund, uh, and for those of you who are not in the Department of Defense, this is all Greek to you, but that fund gives the department a continuous and reliable source of money to pay for training, training and yes, education. Yeah. That's, and that's always been a big deal. I remember when, when we were at GSA, you know, just remember the issue of fees from government-wide contracts and some of the money was returned to the Department of Defense to support training and put in, I think put in that fund, if I recall correctly. At, well, to the Department of Defense, and yeah. then there was money that was also provided to support FAI yes. in a subsequent legislation, but yeah. nothing on the scale of DOTIF. Yeah. Then we also made some additional recommendations in in Volume 2 on uh, improving commercial items, and but more importantly in Volume 2 is where we made the recommendations on CAS, the Cost Accounting Standards. One, on the organization of the cost accounting standards boards, and two, on the thresholds at which cost accounting standards kick in and where your requirements to be CAS compliant in terms of a company and your financial uh, systems uh, will be uh, applicable. And what, 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 were those, what were those increases to? Or I assume they were increases to, so it wouldn't apply as much, right? Right. right, right. I, uh, the the uh, threshold, I think, was twenty five million. I, I don't have it here in front of me, and the um, and the and the top number was a hundred million, 
uh, in terms of where you had to be fully cast compliant. And that makes a big difference. Also, what makes a difference in our recommendations was the, how you count it. Uh, under the current system, um, you, you have what we call trigger contracts, which we raised from, I think, $10 million to $25 million. Um, but they used to count every contract in your in portfolio, your portfolio yeah. to reach the threshold for kicking in full cast compliance. And, and what we've said is only the trigger contracts right. add up to reach the top threshold of $100 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that makes a real difference. Uh, for many companies who do business with the department. Again, it doesn't mean that you don't have to have good accounting systems. It just means that you don't have to change your entire accounting system process to be CAS compliant because you've gotten certain good contracts with the department. Right. Um, And so you you mentioned, um, and what's the reception been in terms of the Hill and, and the stakeholders to the first two volumes? Uh, so, little, and by the way, this is the last question for this segment. So. Well, the first reaction was, geez, over 1,200 pages. Who Who's going to read this? Uh, I think it's important to share with your <laughs> listeners that, yes, there are about 1,200 pages when you add volume one and volume two together. But actually, volume one only has about 145 pages of recommendations. And then we did what we promised. Not only did we make a recommendation, but we actually gave you the language, Congress, the la- or the or the SecDef, the Secretary of Defense, the, the language they would need, or the instruments they would need, or the tools they would need to implement our recommendations if they like right. them. So almost two thirds of each volume is is the line in line out language right. that um, that either Congress or the SecDef would need. In fact, in in volume one on our small business pivot. We actually provided a letter for the uh, the SecDef to sign if he liked our recommendations yes. to implement it. Right, and David, I think that's important for people to understand. It's you know the easy in a certain sense, and nothing's easy, right? But the easier part is to make oh change this. The harder part is, and here are the changes you need to accomplish to reach that. Well, I think if you look at all, I think the two hundred plus commissions or or uh, panels that have made recommendations over time. And if you look at the ones that had a successful impact, it's the ones that told you how to actually make the changes. Right. Uh, most notably among those is the Section 800 panel report that right. was completed in the early 90s and resulted in FASA. Yeah. Um, thanks, David. And we're going to take our last break. My guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel. And when we come back, we'll uh, talk about what's coming in Volume 3 and Wrapping up their effort, um, you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is David Drapkin. He is the chair of the Section 809 panel. That's in you know it's on the, I guess the last lap, so to speak. I don't know what the right the last quarter, right, uh, of the last lap um, of their effort. Their Volume three of their overall report is due um, meant January 15th, right? right January 15th, 2019. 2019. Yeah. Right. So by 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Okay. That reminds me like the old days of bid protests, right? Where you'd file a report and you'd have to race to GAO and they, or you'd fax it and by, get it there by 5.30. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure you'll make that deadline, right? We will make the deadline. Yes, absolutely. So, 
Uh, so let's we talk a little bit about um, what uh, we can expect to see in Volume 3. David? Well, uh, th- th- thank you for asking. Volume 3 will be larger than either Volume 1 or Volume 2, may actually be as large as both volumes combined. It's going to include... Uh, almost 30, I think, can't, not sure whether it's going to be 38 or 43 separate uh, suggestions on wow. various areas. Uh, the two key recommendations, which will be more fully developed, although they were alluded to in volumes one and two, will be readily available, the concept of something called readily available, which will include commercial off the shelf and commercial, but will eliminate the need for those distinctions. Essentially, readily available, again, is anything that's available for sale. You can buy it that doesn't have to be developed at my expense um, in in the marketplace. And so things that we used to refer to as non-developmental before FASA, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, actually, it's going to cover all of those things. And it's going to provide an incredibly simplified process with a threshold of $15 million, um, with uh, terms and conditions that will be absolutely minimal, uh, nothing government unique in those terms and conditions. That's going to be tough uh, in terms of getting Congress to agree to. Uh, But the result will be that the warfighter can get just about anything they need short of an airplane. And actually, there's some airplanes you can buy for $15 million Uh, or less. That's true, yep, yep. Um, uh, in order to make sure they have uh, these things available in the economy today uh, to use to defend the nation. Uh, one of the things we found, which was kind of, you know, you asked me uh, and said you were going to talk about what surprised me, but in the area of readily available, I was surprised when we were out interviewing companies not doing business with the federal government in Silicon Valley and in one day, we ran, uh, we interviewed two companies who had been visited the previous week by delegations from China who had offered to buy the company, yeah. lock, stock, and barrel. And, and the government didn't know. I mean, we knew, but the government really didn't know these companies existed. And they had interesting technologies that could be used in medical care or in and in understanding the battlefield, and we knew nothing about it. And they could buy it, and they didn't have to follow any of our rules. Now, that that surprised me, and that's why we made this distinction of readily uh, available. Okay. Is that like the dynamic market concept you've it's been talking about? It's within the dynamic okay. marketplace. It's, it's giving us access to things that we make here in the United States, uh, also elsewhere, but we make here in the United States – and that the department, because of its rules, either can't find or reach or the companies themselves don't want to sell to us because they don't want to sign a government contract. So that's the first big thing in Volume 3. The second really big thing is we talked in Volume 2 about portfolio management. Yeah. The rest of the world has moved to portfolio management from the current concept employed in the department of individual pro- uh, program management. The idea in portfolio management is to put together things that have similar capabilities 
and manage those things so that we can take advantage of different rates of development in program management in the various programs and we can respond to the warfighters' needs for particular capabilities. This is all kind of esoteric as I discuss it here. But, for example, if we're trying to maintain air superiority on a battlefield, yes, there are a number of different technologies that can help you maintain air superiority. There are rockets, there are planes, there are radars. There's a whole slew of different things. Currently, we would manage them all separately as individual programs. In the concept of portfolio management, we would put them together and, and, and be able to deploy them as they're ready, and, and also importantly, be able to move funds around where we have one program that's kind of in trouble, and we have sure. another program that's ready to really hit the road. Uh, right now, it's difficult to move the funds around, so portfolio management is not only the how we combine individual programs. It's also how we manage the funds to support them. So when the warfighter says, hey, I need this now, we can actually deliver it now. And by the way, it's not just airplanes and air superiorities. It goes to medical care. It goes to uniforms. It goes to every aspect of what we do in terms of putting a young man or woman in the field to defend the nation. That sounds to me a little bit like, and this is not they may, uh, negative, but sounds a little bit to me like category management sort of thing, which the government has been doing for a while or attempting to do, right? But but at the next level. Is that, I mean, I'm being very simplistic, David. Right, but, I understand. Uh, um, <clears throat> and I guess you could make that analogy, except the category management as it's currently employed by the government doesn't reflect how industry manage, does category management. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, You're right about our, that. Yep. unfortunately, our government has chosen, uh, 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 and we really didn't address it, and, and it's not part of the section eight oh nine panel. And I don't want to take on category management today, but but the analogy to portfolio management is is pretty close. It's yeah. pretty close. Is that going to be across? I want to, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it makes makes huge amount of sense. You know, that you get all these interrelated things that have to talk to each other and work sure. together to you know, to have air superiority or whatever on the battlefield. The vision here is the portfolio has got to be both the technologies, but also the requirements holders across the services, right? It can't be well, stovepipe to Air Forces here and right. navies here. Is that well? Part of the part of the problem is is that it, depending on your uniform depends on how you define your requirement. Yes, uh, although many people will deny it, it, it tends to be true. Um, the services actually don't come up with the requirements. It's the warfighting commanders, the combatant right. commanders across the, uh, they used to call them the warfighting sinks. They've changed their names. Um, and, and that's really where the requirements come from. But it's, it's how you, t- today you don't fight a war with the Army fighting a war and the Navy fighting a war. You don't respond to a rescue mission with the Army. I mean, look what happened down in Florida or happened in, uh, in other hurricanes over the last year. Um, we brought in uh, capabilities from all the services to try to d- accomplish rescue or to provide yes. yep. food and, and support. And so the idea of portfolio management is to combine those capabilities um, that are similar and achieve the same outcome and manage them that way, which is uh, it's more economical and it gives us the opportunity to put more innovation in the hands 
of the warfighter and and to get it there before other people get it. Right. It's a strategic approach. Seems it is. To me. Yeah. It yeah. is very strategic. And as I said, industry has already de- adopted yeah. the portfolio approach in its own management of its programs. Also, there are going to be things on on the workforce in Volume 3 that will make significant changes in how we manage career paths and how we look at um, what we need in terms of both education and training for our acquisition workforce. Communications is going to be a big one. Uh, In fact, we just approved recommendations yesterday at our panel meeting that will be in Volume 3, which will have a statute, if, if adopted, would have Congress directing by statute that DOD communicate with industry and demonstrate uh, in periodic reports to Congress that they've actually done it. It takes mythbusters and it takes takes the better buying power objectives. It takes it to the next level. We've had a lot of permission to do it. And as a lawyer, you and I, Roger, at points in times in our careers, advise people that, of course, you can talk to industry. Yes. But there are people who still, despite the advice and despite the uh, policy guidance, don't do it because they're afraid to do it. If Congress tells them to do it, it will will hopefully overcome that reluctance. Uh, In addition to that, uh, Volume 3 will also address uh, funding, fiscal issues, in terms of changes to how appropriations are, uh, are both made by Congress and then how we deal with those appropriations when we get them to provide some greater flexibility without uh, without challenging Congress's authority to sure. uh, both Power appropriate the purse, and right. manage yeah. yep. the, the, those funds. Right. Essentially, uh, that's, that's pretty much the big highlights, but we're going to talk about other issues involving purchasing uh, information technology. We're going to uh, address some uh, one-off recommendations that came in uh, through our our website yeah. www.section809panel.org and and then we're going to as i said uh, we're going to put together uh, after the 15th possibly on time on the 15th a, a a document that pulls this all together so that you can see the 2B picture so that you can for example want to look at our Small business recommendations, you can uh, find them all in one place. And by the way, I I just want to take this opportunity. There's some folks around town who didn't actually read our report in Volume 1 where we proposed a pivot on small businesses and thought that the panel was proposing the elimination of the small business goals. Not true. Let me say it again. Not Not true. true. I'll say it too because I read it. Not true. We proposed actually a ramping up of the department's focus on bringing small businesses into the department's marketplace so that we can take advantage of the tremendous innovation that those companies provide. In fact, we point out in that report, if you read section in volume one, we point out that the original small business program in the government was legislated in the Armed Services Procurement Act of 1947, where they specifically challenged the department to use small businesses in promoting the national defense, and we want to go back there. We do not want to, and we are not proposing the elimination of the small business goals. 
Right. And that's on that note. And you know what that, David, that we, um, we're done. We we're out of time. I don't get, you answered the question, what surprised you. And that goes back to the small business issue, right? The, those, those firms out in Silicon Valley, that Chinese, fo- uh, Chinese were, uh, companies or government representatives were trying to buy are the small businesses you're exactly talking about getting to do business with our, with our government. That's right. Right. So my guest today has been David Drapkin. He is a chair of the section 809 panel. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.